This episode is an interview that I did with Todd Sorrell, who is an ACBC certified counselor and an attorney, and he contributed to the recent book, Legal Issues in Biblical Counseling. Todd and I were together at the ACBC colloquium this summer, and I really appreciated what the wisdom that he had to offer in the talk that he gave. So I wanted to share some of that with you through our podcast and encourage you to check out that excellent book and some of the other resources that Todd has written. Thanks so much for listening. Welcome to 1514, a podcast of the Biblical Counseling Coalition. 1514 draws its name from Romans 1514, where the Apostle Paul encourages the church that they are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to counsel one another. I'm your host and the executive director of the BCC, Dr. Curtis Solomon, and I hope you enjoy today's episode. Todd Sorrell, thank you so much for being with us on 1514 today. Could you introduce yourself to our audience? Sure. Thanks, Curtis. Um, Well, I live in California. I've been uh, a licensed attorney for uh, about 25 years or going on 30 years. And I primarily practice in the area of litigation or disputes. So what that means is I go to court or arbitrations, mediations, mostly domestic, sometimes international. I've been married for almost 30 years. Well, to my wife, Celia, uh, we have three kids who are in their 20s, and I'm ACBC certified in the sense that I am a certified biblical counselor in addition to my legal practice, and I've written a couple of books. I've contributed to certain books and, and publications, and just, uh, I guess that, that's pretty much it. Uh, so I have, a, I have a number of other things going on, but uh, like in terms of businesses, but that's kind of primarily how I'd introduce myself for the purposes of this podcast. Well, I appreciate it. And we, we had the chance to be together at the ACBC Colloquium this summer, and I really appreciated uh, your contribution to that topic and especially helping us think well about legal issues and, and obviously certain topics that are facing uh, the church in the legal sphere in addition to biblical counseling. So thanks for thanks for connecting with us on this podcast. Uh, you recently contri- or you contributed to a book that was published recently through New Growth called Legal Issues in Biblical Counseling. We're not going to focus on that book in this podcast, but I do want people to be aware of it. Could you give our audience a little bit of a teaser about what they could find in that book? Sure. There were a number of authors, mostly connected to the legal arena, that contributed various portions and chapters to this book. And I think actually having seen the book in its entirety, I wasn't the general editor, um, but it actually is very helpful for churches and ministries. I think everybody should get a copy. And the reason why is because it has various chapters relating to the protection of a counseling ministry in the church, um, how to avoid a lawsuit. I wrote a chapter on how to avoid a lawsuit. I wrote a chapter on uh, the local church and a local lawyer and what that looks like and why there should be such relationships. Um, There is uh, information relating to employment issues that churches and ministries face. There's business formation issues, the insurance issues. In short, there's just a number of different topics that are very practical topics that every church and ministry face. Um, And so the problem is most people just kind of ignore these things until there's a problem that arises. Uh, This one is more preventative in nature. It'll give you a lot of information. Or if you're already in a problem or you're looking for a lawyer, it'll give you some uh, tidbits on how to kind of navigate those waters. I really appreciate that. And I'm I'm thankful to see that work because like you said, a lot of churches just 
aren't prepared, aren't equipped, and the best best protection is preparation in in that arena. So really appreciate all the work that you and others did putting that together, and uh, encourage our audience to go check that out and and pick up a copy for you and your ministry. Uh, so as we think about that being prepared, uh, a few categories came to my mind in, in areas in which churches or counseling ministries should be aware of. And they may have been completely inappropriate categories. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but I was thinking along the lines of kind of paperwork and then practices, policies, that kind of thing. Um, so could you, you you tell our audience what kind of paperwork documentation should churches and counseling ministries have in place uh, that will help protect them legally? So obviously uh, most churches or, or ministries have things like bylaws in place. That's the first place to start. That kind of tells you how the church or ministry will be governed. Those documents are extremely important and they're important to be updated. Um, and so they might relate to things nowadays like uh, human sexuality, uh, the authority of the Bible, things that ordinarily would be assumed in the past, but now probably should be explicit in those documents. But in addition to that, there are other documents that you might not think of. For example, there might be um, a consent to counsel form that needs to uh, um, exist in terms of the counseling uh, that, that will be taking place at the church. There are probably employment agreements that might need to be updated. Certainly an employee handbook is something that any organization, any business should have, including churches and Christian ministries. An employee handbook, again, the laws are ever-changing, and so it needs to be updated periodically to make sure it's in compliance with the law, but also that it covers things that you might not necessarily think of um, that have to be in there. So, for example, even if you don't have an employment agreement with somebody, but when they come aboard and they get a copy of the employee handbook and they're you know, required to at least uh, um, assent to the receipt of it and the fact that they will follow it, then you can refer to that handbook later on and say, this was the church policy. You failed to comply. This is why we have to take this adverse employment action, for example. So there's things like that. Um, there are also things, uh, compensation packages. Uh, there are third-party vendor contracts. There's a number of things that Maybe people don't think of, but that's kind of one of the reasons why we're talking today, because we want to at least make sure that churches are equipped or at least understand some of the perils that are out there. No, that's really, really helpful. And one of the things that you you pointed out, and I'm jumping ahead here in my questions just for your your benefit, the that even hearing that list, thinking as a ministry leader or pastor, that sounds pretty overwhelming. Like, how in the world am I supposed to stay up on all of that when I'm preparing a sermon. I'm, I'm prepping for all these counseling classes. And you mentioned a, a chapter in that book, as well as you did a podcast with Dale Johnson about the need to have a relationship with a local lawyer. Um, do you think that's a, a good way to help you stay ahead of the game on that? Or is there some better way to make sure the church is updating its documents appropriately? So, when what I talk about in the book, at least in that chapter, is look, there's not one size fits all. There might be a small church um, that might not have the same legal needs as a mega church. On the other hand, though, I think that God's plan is for his people to plan. And you said at the very beginning that, that there are preventative measures that are probably wise to engage in or wise to take. And I always tell people, I said, look, when you call me, you, that's money you're throwing away because you're already in a bad situation. 
right? So if you can take preventative measures, and that might even cost some money up front. If you secure legal counsel up front for certain advice, it might be free. Uh, let's not assume it is, though. We can get to that in a, in a while, but but it might not be. But I guarantee you the money spent up front is far less than the money you're going to spend on the back end in a dispute or something when your documents aren't in order. So I tell people, I said, look, you don't have to go out and hire a lawyer without a legal problem necessarily. But what I think you should do is have a relationship with the local lawyer. And the reason why I say local, by the way, is because there are rules that vary from state to state. There are rules that vary from jurisdiction or or county to county. And so you want to have a local lawyer who knows how to navigate those particular rules. And again, you might go out and you might think, I mean, the first place I tell people to start looking is in the church. There might be a good lawyer in your church um, that is helpful. Um, so, for example, there's kind of two broad categories in my head about lawyers. There's the transactional lawyers, the guys who put the deals together, write the contracts, et cetera. And then there's the dispute lawyers on my side of the fence, where when things go south, you know, you have to call that guy because he's got to defend you um, and get you out of a lawsuit or try to reach a negotiated settlement. So if you have one of each, that's great. But sometimes churches don't have one of each, but they can find what we call a trusted advisor. Someone that the church trusts to at least help them navigate. And that has to be a trusted advisor so that when he when he's faced with an issue and someone says, hey, I need help on X. He's not the kind of guy who just to make a buck will say, "Okay, I'm going to figure out how to do that. He'll be able to say, you know something, that's not my area, but I'm going to find you the right guy. And I do that a lot with people um, because I know in the, in the law, there are so many different niche practices and sometimes it's my area and sometimes it's not, but you need to find the right lawyer to at least help you uh, on the front end of that. And so I say, go out, find a lawyer. I mean, think of it. I, I often anal analogize it to a landlord. If he gets a call in the middle of the night and his tenant says, Hey, the pipe bursts and is blowing water out everywhere the landlord doesn't just roll over and pray that God heals the pipe, right? <laughs> I mean, he calls a plumber yep. and probably if he's planned ahead, he has a Rolodex or some kind of address book with a plumber or two that he has met at least has in his, you know, you know, in his quiver so that he can pull it out and use it in those situations. So that's the same with lawyer. You don't, again, you don't have to hire somebody up front, but at least know somebody that you can call and say, okay, we're in this situation. And sometimes cases move very slow, but sometimes they move very fast. So you want to know who to call to say, this is not my area. We need help. And again, it should be a local lawyer. Now, last caveat, um, I would say that sometimes, even if you have lawyers in the church, sometimes they're not the best lawyers for the job. There are some people and you will know who we're talking about when you meet them. They will be offended if you don't hire them as the lawyer, even if they're in the church. But you might realize that's not the best for the church. And you, you are stewards of the church and the finances. And so you want the best one for the job. And that may or may not be a Christian. And that's kind of hard for some churches to hear. I recommend, if possible, if you can find a good Christian lawyer to handle something, that's the way to go, because that person typically will understand issues that a non-Christian won't. For example, if there's an employee who leaves and is hostile and is threatening a lawsuit or maybe um, has stolen confidential information or is doing something that obviously was against church policy or just is, is holding the threat of that litigation over the church's head, 
a Christian lawyer might understand why the church would initially, at least, take a softer view toward the person and say, hey, you're kind of misbehaving here, a little bit of Matthew 18. We need you to come back to the fold. You might not work here again, but how you're handling this is not Christ-like. How you're handling this is not biblical. And a a non-Christian lawyer might not understand that. They might say, hey, let's go guns blazing, and we're going to put this person in her place because she obviously violated the policies. But a, a Christian lawyer might be able to understand a little bit why you're doing what you're doing. Uh, that's yeah, that's really helpful. And and kind of circling back to the documentation, how often do you think they it would be wise for somebody to consult a lawyer or to or to update those things based on law? I remember when I worked for the Department of Veterans Affairs, we were constantly having to shift procedure based on case law, and that stuff changes all the time. But is is that something that somebody should always be looking for one to three years? Like, what what would you recommend? Gosh, I wish I had a specific to tell you. <laughs> Again, depends on where you live. In California, I feel, I mean, we have so many laws. I always tell uh, even my sophisticated, massive corporate clients, I'll say, look, you might not think you are, but you're probably violating the five employment laws right now. You just don't know it. There are so many on the books and they're, they seem like they're ever changing. And so I would tell people that, I mean, and it's ideally, you again, you have a trusted advisor who is out there. And for example, let's just take an employment lawyer, labor and employment, who understands some of these issues. That's the kind of person who is staying on top of those laws and then will make a phone call to the church and say, hey, something just came down. We probably should address this and let's quickly update the employment book. Um, But usually you have some time because legislatures, they pass laws and they often don't make them immediate or retroactive. They'll say, okay, January 1st of next year, this is the new law. So you can kind of do it like that. But again, if you're just in some small little um, uh, municipality somewhere or township, there might not be as many laws that kick into effect, but you don't want to be behind you know, the, the, the eight ball, when the litigation or dispute arises, you want to be up to speed and make sure you've done that. And that happens by the way, in every area of law, it's not, you know, whether you're renting property to somebody or whether you're employing somebody, um, there's always laws that take place. Um, there's, a, I just read an article this morning that the California, uh, governor, there's a bill on his desk that, you know, could levy career ending penalties on doctors who are deemed guilty of spreading, you know, so-called misinformation. And you and I both know that that definition changes over time, right? But this, one of those things could slip through and then some doctor finds himself, you know, in hot water for, you know, from giving an opinion on something. Well, the same thing can happen to churches, right? They slip something in, they've redefined a word, and all of a sudden, you don't think you're engaging in that practice, but they say, oh, what you're doing is whatever, conversion therapy or marriage and family therapy, and you should be licensed, et cetera. And you you think, wait, we're practicing religion here. What just happened? And you see the definitional change that happened in the legislature that no one talked about. Yeah, which we definitely saw with uh, conversion therapy for sure. Um, and we had Steve Byers on here to talk about what was going on in West Lafayette uh, last year. So our audience is at least aware of that that issue. Um, on the documents, is there a place where people can go to find maybe good examples or templates of some of those documents that you mentioned before, consent to counsel, maybe release of information, the employee handbook, stuff like that? Sure. So um, I guess there are 
a couple of places. Number one, in this new book, The Legal Issues and Biblical Counseling, we have placed some of those documents in the back. For example, I put back, I mean, there's a personal data inventory, things like that for counseling, but I also put in there um, a consent to counsel template in the back of that book. So someone could literally, if they wanted to, just cut and paste that, fill in the blanks, modify it perhaps, maybe even have a local lawyer look at it, but they could start there. But things like bylaws, most churches already have those in place, but I think you can find most of those even online. But if you're setting up an LLC or you're setting up a nonprofit, the two ways to go really are you get a lawyer and have the lawyer do it. That's the ideal. But the ones that don't have much money, they can go to just a quick fix, you know, legal website and download, you know, for a couple hundred bucks, some of these documents, because these are generic, not necessarily just related to churches. And so you can find, you know, a LLC formation, for example, and you fill in the blanks, you pay the, the, the fee to the state, and then you move on. So there are things like that that you can do. Employee handbooks, the same way. Those are a little bit more complex, but I believe that those are worth spending a little bit of money on, hiring a lawyer to actually put them in place. But by the way, when you hire that lawyer, make sure he's not you know, inventing this from scratch. You want a lawyer who's done a bunch of these who can actually pull a file up from his you know, folder and say, yes, I have an employee handbook. We'll modify it to your organization. Um, but, but he's not going to do everything from the beginning because it'll number one, it'll probably miss some things. And number two, uh, it shows he's not that experienced in this area. Mm. Yeah, that's a good, good word. A uh, little bit of a curveball because like this came to mind. It wasn't something I sent you a question on, but, uh, the issue of we are practicing religion is a, a significant question or element of a potential defense legally. Is there any, based on that, is there any greater protection or, or something people should be thinking about as they're setting up uh, a counseling ministry, whether or not how closely associated it is with the church and whether or not what kind of nonprofit they set it up as um, so that they, they, they are able to say what we are doing as biblical counselors is uh, free speech and a practice of our religion? Sure. Well, in the template that I just mentioned for the consent to counsel form, the very first part of that document, it indicates that this counseling, which is just discipleship, right? This is Christian discipleship, even though it might be more intense than just typical discipleship on a daily basis. But this is part of the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I make that real clear up front. This is part of our practice of religion. I make that real clear up front. And I make it clear also that the Bible is the basis for the counseling. It is the sole authority. And by the way, no one, no counselor, no church can be held responsible or liable for interpreting or, quote, misinterpreting the Bible in any certain way. So, for example, you don't want someone saying, well, yeah, you said you'd follow the Bible, but the Bible says X when they're just twisting what it says. And we say, well, time out. That's not the way it should be interpreted. That's not the way it should be applied. So I put some things like that in there because we want to make it clear that the Bible and God are our sole focus. We make it also clear that we are not licensed by the state. We don't want to be licensed by the state because we are not doing what they do. We are not doing what secular therapists do. I mean, secular therapy, psychology, it changes all the time. The Bible doesn't. But we need to make that up front clear because in the United States, at least, we still have the United States Constitution, which includes the First Amendment. And that includes, like you mentioned, freedom of speech, 
freedom to practice our religion. And so we want to make it super clear that that's precisely what we're doing. So there's not to make, you know, make ourselves easy targets to say that we are practicing, for example, marriage and family therapy, and we're doing it without a license. Therefore, we should be subject to penalties by the state, etc. Yeah. No, definitely. That's, that's helpful. I know some, some of our audience are licensed in, in various states and choose to practice under those restrictions and that wouldn't necessarily apply to them, but in others live in states where they can, in their conformed consent council, include something like that as a licensed counselor. So that's a good, good encouragement to all of us to, um, Curtis, let me, I'm sorry, but, uh, go ahead. If someone is a licensed, you know, for example, marriage and family therapist in a certain state, and they're also doing biblical counseling, they either need, well, I was going to say, they either need to separate those two very carefully, or they need to make sure um, up front they know what the laws are in their state. Some states are certainly, you know, more receptive to uh, what we do than others. But some, you know, when you sign up to be a, quote, licensed, you know, marriage and family therapist, you agree not to proselytize. You agree not to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what I say is you're kind of agreeing in some of those locations not to give the cure. I mean, if, if someone comes to you with cancer and you're a doctor and you have the cure, you want to give it to them. Well, that's what we do as biblical counselors. Someone comes to us with soul or emotional problems and we say, you know something, there's some practical steps you can take. But guess what? There's an actual cure. The Bible, let's look to see what God has to say about this to cure the soul. Well, some licensed um, individuals are restricted from doing that. That's one of the reasons why I'm not licensed and I wouldn't be licensed, um, because I think that we are not doing a service to these folks. So they just need to be extremely careful if they're licensed and biblical counselors, what that looks like. No, absolutely. And that's where your point of having the local local awareness of the laws and a local lawyer relationship is going to be extremely important and extremely helpful. So Todd, we, we talked about preventative measures, and that's such an important thing. And, and penny saved is a penny earned kind of thing. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. We definitely want to encourage people to do that. But if somebody finds themselves in the hot water where they are sued or somebody brings a case against their ministry or them personally, what would you recommend they do at that point? So the first thing is to contact a lawyer. <laughs> and hopefully <this laughs> you've, already, you've already done. Now, obviously, what we do is we hit our knees, we pray, right? But too often, churches and ministries are afraid of contacting lawyers. Some people have even said to me that it, it demonstrates or exhibits a lack of trust in God. And I just, I just, I don't get that. I, I just think that's absolutely silly. You should call a lawyer and say, hey, we just received a lawsuit, or by the way, we got a threat of a lawsuit. And please, 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 on behalf of all lawyers out there, don't wait until the very last day before the response is due. <laughs> we get that too often. I say, well, when did you get this? Well, 29 days ago. Okay, your response is due tomorrow. Sorry. So what we need to do is for, we got to contact the lawyer. Say, what do I do? Because part of a lawsuit or a dispute, it's just scary. There's a lot of anxiety that goes into that. And lawyers, good lawyers can actually put their arm around you and say, look, we're going to pray about this. We're going to talk about this. But let me tell you what this looks like. It's not quite as scary as you think. And we're going to get through it. Now, it, this could happen in a number of ways. Number one, you could have a lawsuit. OK, but that's the most formal. But oftentimes it's just a demand letter up front from another lawyer that the, uh, the for example, a, a departed employee or disgruntled you know, vendor. Somebody sends a letter from a lawyer or by themselves. It's kind of a demand letter. 
again, I suggest that you get a lawyer involved, even if they write it for your letterhead. Um, you want to at least have somebody say, OK, this is how we do this. So it's to protect you later if this goes south. The other way is you could receive a subpoena. I mean, we've talked about biblical counselors here. Let's say you get a subpoena for records. Um, biblical counseling records may not be privileged. Again, it depends on where you're located and what the rules are, but you want to talk to a lawyer. If, or if a, a minister got um, a subpoena and says, hey, I want all the, the documents relating to the confidential communications you had with this parishioner. Well, I would say there's probably a privilege that attached to that, but talk to a lawyer. Um, but in terms of just what it looks like, I always tell people that cases are often won or lost based on the documents. So make sure your documents are in order. Now, by the way, that doesn't mean you have to keep detailed records of everything. Some people do, some people don't. That's not what I'm talking about here. That might be a personal or wisdom issue. But what I'm saying is you want to at least make sure when something pops up, oh, Again, let's just use the disgruntled employee. Let's pull this person's personnel file. Let's make sure no documents, no texts, no emails, no nothing um, is deleted or destroyed. Okay, that's a no-no. So we want to make sure we have the documents in place. And those are the things that you rely upon later. And if you're doing it right, you will have documented things such as annual reviews for employees or um, major issues with uh, counselees so that when someone says, hey, this guy was, for example, suicidal, and if he never mentioned it to anybody at the church, you at least want to be able to show, hey, look, I, I have some documents on this. And he talked about, you know, overeating gummy bears or whatever it was, but he never said anything about suicide. What are we talking about here? But you just don't want to be if possible in a he said, she said situation, right? So get the documents together. And in terms of the basic documents that I think you must have, for example, biblical counsel, you want to have a signed consent to counsel form. I cannot stress that enough. You will not use those 99.9% .9 of the time, but at least it sets the parameters of what you're doing up front. It's informed consent. So if they later say, hey, you should have done X, Y, or Z, or you should not have done X, Y, or Z, you can pull the document out and say, we were crystal clear up front what this was going to look like. And this is what he did. He reviewed it and signed it. You want that sent to the counselee, hopefully in advance of your first meeting so they can review it. And you do not start your counseling without that signed. Now there's a lot of different variations of that and what that looks like, but that's a basic one. Um, in addition, for churches, I think you need to have your membership documents in order, um, including your bylaws. So um, for example, there was a situation a while back that someone mentioned to me that a, um, a person who was a member of the church engaged in adultery and some other things and then was subjected to church discipline. And then he just refused to participate and said, you know something, I'm out of here. I resigned my membership. And he went down the street to join another church. Well, the problem is then the church said, we got to call that new pastor and say, hey, just FYI, this guy just came to you and this was the situation. The problem is they didn't have anything in their church documents that says that they that, that the church discipline process can continue after someone resigns their membership. 
it's it's helpful to have in there. So there are things like that that are just practical that you'd want to have included in your documents so as to make it easier on a lawyer. That's the goal here, to dissuade someone from taking, you know, strong legal positions against you and to dissuade those lawyers from, you know, from taking those cases. Because a lawyer, I guarantee you, is thinking, okay, I wouldn't mind a quick hit here. Um, and then they all of a sudden receive the document and they go, you know, it's going to be a lot harder than I thought. I'm not taking this case. So you eliminate some of the potential lawyers that the, that the bad guys can get. Let's just say that. <laughs> yeah. They don't want to, they don't want to do as much work as uh, the quick, the quick hit, as you mentioned. Um, <clears throat> that's good. One, one thing that we talked about a little bit, cause a lot of the, at the colloquium, we were talking about human sexuality, including same sex attraction and other, and transgender uh, issues and gender dysphoria issues, things along those lines. And we, we had a discussion about, um, if potential cases arise about that accusing biblical counseling of being harmful or hurtful uh, versus other forms of therapy, that judges oftentimes make assessment of a case based on evidence and documented evidence. Um, and so it, it leads to, to some internal brainstorming a little bit and some conversations. What kind of evidence would would sway a judge in, in an instant like that um, to side with a church, a, a biblical counseling ministry? Well, let me just use an analogy, kind of get us all on the same page. Um, we are recording this um, a couple years after the fact, but we all remember what happened in the 2020 United States presidential election. Right after the election, there were allegations that there was election fraud, that there was uh, um, improper and illegal activity related to the vote. Now, you, Curtis, and I don't know specifically because we weren't there. We didn't see people illegally doing things, right? But we read the articles and we understand at least the arguments. Someone said the election was stolen. Other people said, no, it wasn't. Fine. Then there were a number of lawsuits that were filed. And as a lawyer, it was interesting for me to watch some of those play out because oftentimes, perhaps not always, but oftentimes I would look at the evidence that was being presented on behalf of um, for example, the Trump campaign. And oftentimes that evidence was uh, consisted of things like newspaper articles or uh, just someone saying, well, I've heard and I've read and everybody knows this, right? And I always thought to myself, well, that's not actually admissible evidence in court. And I assume that some of these judges were you know, rubbing their you know head going, what am I supposed to do with this? This is what we would call hearsay or inadmissible information. So what we what really needed to happen is they needed to have somebody who said, I was there, I saw X, Y, and Z take place, period. That's helpful evidence because it's personal information based on personal knowledge. So same thing when we're talking about, for example, biblical counseling. One of the attacks on biblical counseling um, is that, oh, it does harm to, um, for example, minors, or it does harm to people who are participating in it because it makes them feel bad about themselves. And we want to protect people, and therefore we should outlaw this biblical counseling um, stuff. So what tends to happen is the other side comes in with uh, these hired guns, these, you know, quote, experts who say, oh, yes, it's devastating and terrible, et cetera, and they have their anecdotes. What I think would be helpful on our side, um, not necessarily mandatory, because, again, we have the First Amendment, the United States Constitution that says we can practice religion. But what would be helpful is if you have, for example, um, personal stories of people who have been helped by biblical counseling. 
In 1 Corinthians 6, it says, it makes a list of all these, you know, horrific sins, right? It says, you guys did this, and you were this, and you were this. Some of you were some of these things. What that means is there is a possibility through Christ to change. And so when we have real stories of people saying, well, I know what they're saying, that it's devastating, but I can tell you it was helpful to me. This is what I was going through. This is what I was struggling with. And I opened my Bible with my counselor and we saw what God's plan was. And it has turned my life the other way around. Praise God. I'm different because of Jesus. And those are the kinds of things. If someone puts pen to paper and writes that out, that'd be great. And obviously, ideally, we'd have a mass of that stuff so that we could say, well, you can talk about your studies on that side, but we can show you studies on our side that say it helps. Now, again, that's not the, the, the linchpin that's going to you know, win this entire case or not. But that's what actual evidence is. It's admissible because it's not hearsay evidence. Now, there's lots of exceptions to hearsay, and I don't want to get into those today. But, but typically, that's what happens. People say, well, I've heard this or I've heard that or generally speaking. But if you have somebody that you know that's willing to put that pen to paper, I think that's really helpful. Yeah, and I would actually you jump off of that to encourage our audience, whether maybe that's you, maybe you were that person who struggled in a particular way and you were helped through biblical counseling, or if you're a biblical counselor who knows people who've grown a lot, who would be willing to, to share their testimony if, if need be. Uh, we talked about it. The best way probably would be to send your information, the contact information to us here at pod, podcast at biblicalcc.org or maybe to ACBC or one of the other organizations in your area so we can begin to build a database of, of resources uh, to help in those instances. Uh, we mentioned the, the contact information would be the most helpful because your, your testimony may need to be drafted to a particular case uh, to help help that case specifically. So uh, don't need don't need those letters ahead of time, but your contact information if you would be interested in that. It also sparked conversation about the increased interest in our in our field of doing empirical research that demonstrates the effectiveness of biblical counseling. So, like Todd was saying, a lot of people will come with evidence based treatment as the the phrase of the day, they'll come with studies showing how this works or that doesn't work, et cetera. And uh, there's an increasing interest in that in biblical counseling as well. So if you're interested in that, be be on the lookout. We have some initiatives in that arena in the Biblical Counseling Coalition and a few others uh, across the country. So be aware of those things. Well, Tal, this has been really fascinating and interesting. And I think one of the big takeaways for all of us is we're not the experts in the law. We need to, we need relationships with lawyers. Uh, get that book, read it, and then and re- make a relationship with a local lawyer in your area. We have a segment at the end called Two Minute Favorites. Are you, you ready for this? Uh, I guess so. I'll give you two minutes. <laughs> I'm going to start a timer. As my coach used to always say in basketball, you can do anything for 32 minutes, right? So two minutes should be nothing. Uh, here we go. What is your favorite food? Lasagna. What is your favorite color? Blue. Favorite sport? Football. Favorite, sports, favorite sports team? Dallas Cowboys. Uh, favorite word? Oh, that's a hard one. I have no idea. The first word that came to my mind was joy. All right. Least favorite word? 
anything in legalese. I hate it when lawyers <laughs> do that. So I don't have a least favorite, but I have a category. All right. Favorite candy? You know, I don't eat a whole lot of candy. I'm not really sure. I have no idea. All pass. right. Favorite book of the Bible? Romans. Favorite book outside of Scripture? The Gospel According to Jesus. Favorite gift you've ever received? Oh, I remember my BB gun when I was a little kid. That's the one that always comes to mind. Favorite gift you've ever given? Uh, I have no idea. The first thing that came to mind was my uh, the engagement ring to my wife, but uh, <laughs> I'll go with that. All right. Favorite ice cream flavor? Butter pecan. Favorite Bible verse? 1 Corinthians 10.31. The part of it says, do all things to the glory of God. If you had any superpower, what superpower would you choose? To be able to speak any language on the planet. <laughs> That's probably not a superpower. Otherwise, I guess I'll fly. Favorite movie? I love Braveheart. If your mother were to describe you in one word, what word would she use? Well, she tells me she's proud of me, but I don't know what word she would use. Uh, she always talked to me about Psalm 118, 24. This is the day that the Lord has made. You shall rejoice and be glad in it. So I think she thinks I'm pretty upbeat. All right. Well, that wraps up our two-minute favorites. You did well, especially for not having the questions ahead. You got through almost the whole list. So Todd Sorrell, thank you so much for being with us on 1514 today. Thanks, Curtis. I appreciate the time. Thank you for listening to today's episode of 1514. If you'd like to find out more about the Biblical Counseling Coalition, you can visit our website at biblicalcc.org. Special thanks to our podcast engineer, James Wills, who does all the post-production editing to make this podcast sound so wonderful. Also want to thank my assistant, Carrie Felton, for helping to arrange these interviews. And a special thanks to Andrew Riddell, who composed and recorded the music we use on 1514. I hope you have a wonderful day.